When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everybody, welcome to Who Cares About the Rock Hall, a podcast about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm your host, Joe Pozzala, and I know too much about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It is my curse. To you, the blessing, the listener, remains to be seen. Uh, with me, as always, is my co-host. This is her curse, definitely. Absolutely uh, cursed. Um, she's the voice of the people, the skeptic. Kristen stuttered. Hey, Kristen. Hello. Good morning. Yeah, it really is morning. A rare early morning. It really to record. is. Really the only way that it could happen was because I'm on the East Coast. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it's not really an early morning record for me, even though you might even be able to detect in my voice. This is the man who woke up very recently. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps. I don't know how uh, nuanced <laughs> we're getting in terms of the uh, interpretation of the vocal fry in my voice. But uh, Kristen, do you know what month it is? No, what month is it? It's September. September. So we have actually aired two episodes that were reruns. I can't believe I didn't even we think are, about this. We are rerunning. We're doing the same month again so as last as last year. September Berkselance. Mu- oh God, yeah, Mus- you, Mus- yeah. Mus- 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 You nailed it. Kill me. <laughs> Welcome to Mu September Excellence. Okay. Once Mew again, Septem- Kristen. Mu September Excellence. Yes, oh. a month long celebration of the musical excellence category at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Wow. And so here we are. And let's go ahead and bring in our guest. Uh, so excited to have her join us. And, and she is in Minneapolis and yes. she is a music writer. And we're so happy to bring her in. Andrea Swenson. Hey, Andrea. Hey, hello from flyover country. <laughs> no, no, from, no. Yeah, I'm from uh, Chicago, so oh, right there with you. And not not for this episode. Minneapolis is not uh, flyover country at oh, all. Oh, are we going to talk about Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis? We absolutely are. Oh, I, I literally have forgotten that they're getting in this year. I should, as soon as you said she was in Minneapolis, I should have. It should have clicked. And mm-hmm. I, yeah, it's right? eight. It's eight thirty a.m. where I am, and I am pre-coffee. Maybe they'll notice when the coffee gets brought to me. Maybe people yeah. will, will will notice the change in my demeanor. But when that, uh, when that wow! Hits. Oh, this is exciting. Oh, now I'm 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 waking up. Yeah, look at that. <laughs> A noticeable change. But before we get into that, Andrea, you know, you've never been on this show before. I would love to kind of introduce you to our audience. So you have been covering the Minneapolis music scene for a long time. Yes. Yeah. I've been working as a music journalist in a variety of mediums, Uh, print media. I just wrapped up a decade at our public radio station, Minnesota Public Radio's The Current. The Current. Yes. That is probably why your name sounds familiar to me, because I used to listen to The Current at my old job. I would just stream it online. Aww. Uh, Great yeah. station. Great That's station. Awesome. 
Yeah. Yeah. It was just a wonderful place to really develop my voice and explore audio. And I, you know, have a background as a writer. I've written, I'm working on now my second book about uh, local Minnesota music history, but creating audio is really fun. And now I, I do podcasts. I work um, on the official Prince podcast for his estate and just do all sorts of different music journalism-y things here in Minneapolis. Now I got to go peripheral. What's your reference level for the bizarre institution that is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Well, I definitely come at it from a local standpoint. So I've, I've followed, you know, any local artist that, that gets inducted. And um, obviously, you know, I've studied Prince's experiences appearing there as both a, an artist that inducted, you know, other artists and then also getting inducted himself in that amazing performance of All My Guitar Gently Weeps with mm -hmm. Tom Petty, where he played probably the greatest guitar solo of all time. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of my my uh, viewpoint of it is from this local angle, but certainly, you know, with Cleveland not being too far from here, it's kind of a Midwest institution as well. Right, right, right. Now, with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis getting inducted this year, that was a surprise because, you know, a lot of inductees, they're on the ballot and then, you know, there's a lead up to it. Will they get in? Won't they? But then for this side category, musical excellence, and for producers in general, they are just announced. Now, did that make waves either locally or personally? Absolutely. Well, it was kind of a crazy week here in Minneapolis because Jimmy was actually on his way home that week. He was going to perform and did perform at his father's 95th birthday party. Uh, his father is Cornbread Harris. He's actually the subject of the book I'm working on right now. And uh, so it was this big to-do already because Jimmy was coming home and there was going to be this big event. And then this announcement came just like three days before the concert. So he was in the paper literally every day that week. <laughs> Everyone was just buzzing about, you know, this big Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis news. Wait, I'm sorry. Cornbread Harris? Yes. Yeah, uh, that's Jimmy's father. Is he a musician, a uh, musician. traveling? Okay, I'm yes. like, yeah, and very with the name like um, Cornbread Harris. You got to be something special. That's not just like local, mm -hmm. uh, right. local right. plumber. Cornbread Harris's <laughs> 90th birthday will be celebrated uh, by okay. Jimmy Jam. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, he's a he's a lifelong musician. He's been performing in the Twin Cities since World War II in a lot of different groups and also it just says himself he's actually has the exact same name as jimmy they're both james samuel harris and cornbread goes by cornbread jimmy goes by jimmy jam obviously and uh the you know interesting thing about their relationship is that they were actually estranged for almost 50 years they parted ways when jimmy was still a teenager and just came back together talking to each other and wanting to um, be more in each other's lives last year. So it's been this wow. incredible process of rebuilding their relationship. And I think both of them have really reflected a lot on what the other one means to them, you know, creatively and personally. And so to see Jimmy come home and, and share the stage with his dad after that much time was extremely powerful. Yeah, the whole crowd at this little venue where they played called the Hook and Ladder Theater was just like in tears and kind of just waiting with bated breath to see what they were going to do next. It was really amazing. Yeah, that sounds very powerful. I mean, we can use that to kind of transition into, I'd like to just, you know, use this episode as a means to tell the story of, of Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. And we could kind of start 
but the fact that yeah jimmy jam was born into uh, a musical family and one that had a reputation already in the city Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, Cornbread, as a young person, was in a band called the Augie Garcia Quintet, and they actually had the honor of recording the first ever rock single in Minnesota. So it was a song called High Ho Silver that came out back in 1955. So he's always had this little asterisk by his name of like, Cornbread Harris, who, you know, co-wrote the first rock and roll single from Minnesota. I learned later that he's actually singing on the B-side, which is kind of fun, too. It's a cover mm. of Going to Chicago. So he already had this kind of place, you know, established in Minnesota music history before Jimmy was even born, just a few years before he was born. And then, you know, Jimmy's talked a lot with me um, over the course of this last year about all the things that he absorbed from his father growing up, you know, having a piano in the home and gigging from a very, very early age. Cornbread actually tapped him to play in his band when Jimmy was only 11 years old. And he would play drums with Cornbread on keys. And then there, there was another guy on guitar and they would go out to like the shores of Lake Minnetonka and play in these supper clubs for people. And Jimmy would, you know, be a kid basically learning how to like load in and play gigs and get paid and, you know, how to, you know, ask for dinner afterwards so you get some <laughs> free food. And he's been talking a lot about, you know, just how formative that experience was. And then just musically what his dad was teaching him, which was, um, you know, very much rooted in the blues. Um, Cornbread's a really talented blues and jazz and gospel and soul and pop musician and um you know really obviously knows his way around the piano and soloing and that kind of stuff so um that's that's really what jimmy was absorbing as a, a very young kid and a really touching story that he told me is that um, before he'd even met terry lewis he met prince when they were both going to junior high together in in south minneapolis and they sat down next to each other at this um, like piano room where you could take piano classes. So there were just keyboards set up at all these different tables and they each sat down at one. And Jimmy played one of his dad's blues licks on the keyboard and then Prince played it back and <sighs> added to it. And then Jimmy played another thing. And I just thought that was so poignant that they were speaking to each other for the first time through music and also through Jimmy's own and Prince's own father's influences, you know. And having that like really deep connection to like black music in Minneapolis. When you read about these guys and how early they knew each other, the fact yeah, that Prince like and Jimmy fact... Jam were in you know middle school together, and you know, and Jimmy and Terry met very early on as well, and like a lot of the guys from the time, like they were all preteens essentially when they met each other, or early teens, and that's just how insane for yeah. something like that to to happen absolutely and they were all like awkward nerds you know <laughs> like finding sure. each other and being like really into music and and having that be you know kind of their I've, I've heard a few of them compare it to being like almost on like an athletic team as a kid like they treated their bands like these competing sports teams and there was definitely that element of it where you could either like join the football team or the basketball team where you could form a band and it was kind of the same level of camaraderie and competition kind of baked into everything right and so jimmy and terry the story is that they met at a summer program uh where you know it wasn't even like necessarily a musical summer program i think they might have been like teaching math 
or something. Yeah, they were mentoring young kids. <laughs> like a like an enrichment program, kind of like a summer where you go away and you do extra school, but in a different area. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I believe it was called Upward Bound. Oh, yep. they did Upward Bound together? Right. I love I I love hearing that. Isn't that sweet? And they met because uh Terry had a base in his dorm room and Jimmy was walking by one day and was like, Oh, are you a musician? <laughs> and it kind of started this lifelong friendship and partnership. They didn't really collaborate right away. Um they each had their own band, so they actually started out kind of as rivals, but really respected and appreciated each other and eventually ended up kind of rolling into flight time together and then you know the time and and the rest of it right and you know at the in the early stages even though they were they were buds the you know i think jimmy was more into like the philadelphia soul sound whereas you know terry was trying to do straight funk and when they tried to play together it just it didn't quite mesh they weren't ready to to do that yet so yeah they ended up you know they'd see each other at the battle of the bands constantly as they were growing up and didn't didn't fully get back together the story i had heard was that maybe five or six years after you know they had met jimmy was kind of focusing on being a dj and he would dj at the clubs and terry had this band as you mentioned flight time f-l-y-t-e um and convinced jimmy a you know who had been a drummer to be the second keyboard player right whoa you gotta have two uh <laughs> i think it was it was the cool thing to do at the time is to have two keyboard players well because keyboards were like evolving really rapidly mm-hmm. at that point so you had to have the newest coolest weirdest sounding keyboards and then you had to have as many as possible <laughs> right yeah and i i it was within a few weeks of jimmy joining flight time uh that prince came calling Yeah. And, you know, Prince was one of the bands in the Battle of the Bands with them, too, which is, I mean, to be able to go back in time and see just one of those outdoor showcases would have been incredible because it was Prince's band Grand Central with Morris Day on drums. And then Jimmy's band was called Mind and Matter. And they had this like quartet of vocalists and Jimmy was playing keyboard and he was writing a lot of the songs, even though he was like 15 years younger than everyone else in the group. (laughs) And then Terry had this like basically like a parliament funkadelic crazy you know psychedelic funk band flight time and then Sonny thompson had his band the family that was really like a couple years older than a lot of these guys and and kind of their mentors and like big brothers in in the scene so to see that much talent coming out of a football field in 1976 is just like this incredible mental image to me yeah let alone like what the musical landscape would kind of be nationally within you know a decade or so right yeah like they were gonna take such like center stage and also i guess just thinking about how they were forming the sound that would come to be you know known as the minneapolis uh sound you you can hear all those influences even when you're naming them you know like the philadelphia soul and like all of that It, it just you can hear it kind of all come together and then also obviously the number of keyboards uh, uh, <laughs> present and, you know, kind of like, well, I mean, like they were going to go on and produce control, you know, it's like a uh, synth and like, kind of like do that thing with, I don't remember what it's called, but with the, with the drum where it's just going to be the sound of the eighties. Like they're going yep. to create essentially the drum sound of the eighties. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can see that kind of like, you can trace it on back into that. It's like, 
Very exciting to imagine. And how old are they at this point that they're playing on this football field? I mean, they would all be like 16, 17, <laughs> maybe 18. <laughs> it's Kids. like what every kid in a battle of the bands thinks is going to happen. Yeah, we're all going to yep. take over. <laughs> it's just a matter of time. Right. Like someday we'll look back on this and we won't be able to believe how many amazing things, you know, were formed on this here, you know, stage. What a moment in time. I'm yeah. thinking of the bands that came out of my high school. I'm like, <laughs> where is Red Alert now? Changing the world, <laughs> no doubt. Um, but yeah, so Prince Prince comes along. At, at this point, He's he's had some success and he is ready to take flight time and turn them into a slightly different band that would be on his label. Yeah, it's interesting too to think about, you know, he had not yet had a hit of his own. He had his recording contract with Warner Brothers, but was certainly not a chart-topping artist yet or even, you know, a household name at all. And already had this opportunity to start mentoring other bands and really stepping into that kind of protege or Svengali role. And the time was, you know, a, a rival of his, as we mentioned, and I think he really wanted to both have them come along as someone that he could help shape and form and also someone that was going to keep that kind of burning intensity of like competition alive. I think he really thrived on that, being surrounded by other musicians that he wanted to like one up or, you know, prove something to. And those early days of Prince and the time on the road together are just so legendary now because they really were just trying to absolutely destroy each other every night. Like it wasn't even so much about the audience. <laughs> it's like just trying to prove something to each other. Which it seems like Prince loved and they loved. It wasn't like a uh, how dare you try to blow me off the stage. It was like, okay, it's it was on. like, here we go. Oh, you got, some, it was like almost like keeping each other sharp, like mm -hmm. knives, sharpening knives or whatever. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Because flight, so flight time became the time, essentially the same group with some minor personnel changes, most notably that Morris Day went from not being in that band and being the drummer in his band to being the front man. To uh, being Morris Day group. and the time. I right. mean, how does that happen that he was like the drummer to the front man? Was he just. As I, as I recall reading, Alexander O'Neill had been in flight time mm -hmm. and at a meeting with Prince because he was he was the lead singer. And at a meeting, he kind of embarrassed himself or he he was too much. He was a little extra. Uh, he kept talking about like, I need to get paid. I need paper. And it like turned Prince off and was like, okay, that guy, that guy's gone. Uh, yeah. Morris Day is going to be the new singer. Just to add to the visual, they were all at Perkins. Right. <laughs> having this conversation. Having the diner up. Perkins? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Okay. The chain. The chain. <laughs> yeah, the chain diner. I'm, there was one in my college town. Yeah, I mean, they're all across the country. <laughs> you got to sit down at Perkins and hash it out. And yeah, Not the end, end of the dinner... Alexander O'Neill was out. He he wanted to be paid up front. And I think Prince always, I mean, it's a through line of his whole career was always more about the creative vision than trying to f figure out the payroll part of it right up front. <laughs> so um, I, think, I think that really turned him off. And Morris was so hungry at that point and had really kind of earned his stripes on the road with Prince. He was actually touring with Prince as the videographer. You know, Prince famously recorded every performance that he ever did so he could review it afterwards. And Morris was running the VHS, you know, camera. <laughs> in the back of the club every night just waiting for his chance to like get in you know with what prince was doing so he was there he was hungry he was ready and then he and prince already had that 
kind of um, camaraderie of being in a band together and, you know, being from North Minneapolis and really understanding culturally what that meant to both of them. And, and they could kind of come together and form this Morris Day character, which was, as Morris writes in his memoir, like it became this kind of larger than life character that Morris would have trouble kind of differentiating between like, where does that Morris Day end? And where do I begin? Because it mm -hmm. became this like, yeah, stage presence and then life presence for him. And and really took both of them to the next level. And you can uh, potentially shed some light on this, but the, the rumor was always that in the studio, the time was very much a Prince project, and that really, even though there was a band who played instruments, Prince was playing all the instruments on the time records, and Morris's vocals had to be exactly note for note what Prince laid out. Yes, although I will add that Morris was playing drums. So it was very okay. much a Prince and Morris uh, collaboration. But oh. Prince was really, you know, the visionary of all of the other layers of instrumentation and melody and lyrics and all of these things. And then Morris was always kind of like his, they would find a groove together and lay down like kind of the, the bedrock of the songs together. And then yeah, Prince would kind of flesh it out, and then Morris would have to try to sing along with Prince's guide vocals, which sounds incredibly intimidating. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but like, like you said, it was in the live performances opening for Prince where the members of the time got to not only finally play, but really try to show their stuff. Yeah, and it was interesting. You know, something I learned um, interviewing Jesse Johnson is that he was you know photographed as being one of the original members of the time on the album cover he had actually just gotten in minneapolis like two weeks before that picture was taken so not only had he like never played with these guys but he didn't even know you know that he was going to be in the time and it just kind of um prince was always kind of one step ahead of everybody in that way so he was definitely like envisioning this group and then making the music and then let's see what happens when we you know turn it into a live act and it became this just incredible band mm -hmm. now while they're still in the time is when jimmy and terry start to produce other artists yes yeah and this is another kind of thread that's all throughout prince's career is that you know he worked with these incredibly talented musicians throughout his life who also had ambitions to have their own careers and to, mm -hmm. you know, figure out their own voice and style and what they wanted out of, you know, the music industry. And that immediately created tension within the time because Prince really wanted that to be their main focus. And they really wanted to start exploring more in the studio. And since Prince wasn't really giving them that they opportunity, were like, we actually would like to play on some of our records. I don't <laughs> right. know. Uh, what do you think? We, we could maybe try to write a song. Like, <laughs> yeah. So that started happening um, on when they were all on tour for the um, 1999 tour, and that's when everything kind of came to a head because uh, Jimmy and Terry started moonlighting, and then they got caught because there was a, a snowstorm, and they didn't make it back in time to to play a gig. Oh. Right. So, you know, they are they're producing like they produce Climax's second album. And I believe at that time 
Jimmy's going by James Jam the third. Uh, James Jam is not quite. Oh, is not quite baby, officially... don't go by James Jam. <laughs> Jimmy. No, no, no. James Jam is your father. Cornbread <laughs> is actually your father, but James Jam. Uh, but that doesn't that doesn't last long. James he's, he's Jimmy Jam. Jam pretty quickly. And as you might recall, Kristen, you know, uh, Clarence Avant was inducted into the Rock Hall last year, mm-hmm. and the connection between. Him and Taboo Records and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Those guys provide some of the yeah, best moments in that documentary sudden. on Netflix. Yes. You know, so they are producing the SOS band. And I believe it's a session with the SOS band where they get caught in a snowstorm and can't make it to the gig uh, in Texas. And that's kind of the final straw for Prince. And they are let go from the time. Thankfully, that song was a top 10 hit. It all worked out. Yeah, what song were they working on? Oh, just be good to me. Which we, I believe, talked about in our 1983 episode uh, for our listeners. Uh, <laughs> you know, just as they they were getting started was you know kind of a, a huge year for all these inductees. Weirdly enough, and yeah, so then they continue to work with uh, with Clarence and Taboo. They work with Sherelle and the the first song that they write so they had been producing before they started also writing for these artists the first one that they write is a song called i didn't mean to turn you on oh yeah which became a bigger hit later with uh, robert palmer that's probably the version i think most people know uh you know because the shirelle song went to number 79 the robert palmer version went to number two so well and also i was like that song's from later is what i was thinking (laughs) yeah right and you know they they hooked back up with alexander o'neill the guy who fucked himself over at perkins (laughs) um you know they they start they start working with him again um you know because they he's a he's a great vocalist he has a, a really great voice and so he's with taboo as well um, and there's a great duet with Sherelle and Alexander O'Neill. They do a number of duets, but to me, the best one is uh, Saturday Love. That's a lot of this is uh, coming to me from the Clarence Avon uh, documentary as well. They really talked a lot about that because uh, I guess this is Taboo Records still then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got it. And so they're not working exclusively with Taboo, but they have a number of uh, artists with the label that, that that they're working with. Well, and, you know, Clarence is out there giving them good advice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Telling oh. them their worth. <laughs> right. Exactly. So Clarence, kind of the anti-Prince, too. Clarence was very much about the money, you know numbers oh Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah jimmy's (laughs) talked about that a lot that he you know called them up one day and was like we have to talk about your rate and they're like oh i'm sorry is it too much we can Mm -hmm. lower it and he's like no it's not high enough you have to increase it and it really put that business mentality in both their heads i think Mm -hmm. yeah well and it's cool to have had formative years with prince who is so singularly creatively motivated and also you know controlling you know wanted to have complete Mm -hmm. control and then have access to kind of the brilliant kind of business mind and someone who has like truly you know is for the people for black people uh Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. clarence avon uh to have those two figures in your formative career is like that's why we're talking about them today, I'd say. Oh, absolutely. Uh, 
I mean, they're always eager to thank Clarence anytime that they win any kind of award. You can tell that it it just has had this lifelong impact on both of them and the way that they view their themselves and their work and their worth, as you said. And not to read too much into it, but I, I do think he was somewhat of a father figure uh, to both of them as well at a time when they really needed that. Yeah. Yeah, he's a, I mean, we we talked a lot about Clarence Avant last year and we are, uh, we both love that guy so much. He just seems like a, you know, how could you not? He's the man. I love him. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Jimmy and Terry are producing, you know, a number of artists, Cheryl Lynn, Thelma Houston, Patty Austin, Ice-T, oddly enough, like a, a few songs here and there. Uh, and they're thinking about doing their own album. You know, it, it's come time where, you know, we've produced a number of hits at this point. Let's do our own thing. But who comes along and sidetracks them? Miss Jackson. Miss Jackson. If you're nasty. If you're nasty. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, Janet comes along, they get the opportunity. You know, I, I believe it was John McClain from AM Records takes, you know, Janet from the grip of her father and she's ready to do something else. And he provides a list to Jimmy and Terry of the AM artists and, you know, who would you like to work with? And they see Janet and they get excited. And what a, what a partnership, man. It's right. And so that's, incredible. that's really, I mean, that is quite an inflection point in their careers. Yeah. And I think maybe a good moment for us to take a break. And then when we come back, we'll really get into Janet and everything that happens for Jimmy and Terry after that. So we will be right back. Don't go anywhere. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We hope you had a nice break. We hope over your break, you were replenished without even knowing it. Truly. So we're talking about Janet. The album is Control, and it kind of sets things off, not just for for Jimmy and Terry, but Janet. Like the three of them together, it, it catapults them into a completely new plane. Yeah. Control 
hugely popular, successful, incredibly commercially successful album. What is the commercial success of that? It's we're talking five times platinum, number one record. You know, ultimately five top five singles from that album, including "When I Think of You," which went to number one. favorite Janet Jackson song. Really? It's a great one. Yes. And, uh, you know, I mentioned that they were working on their own album. What Have You Done For Me Lately was going to be a track on that album for themselves when then they were like, well, seems like Wait, Janet Jimmy is... Jam and Terry Lewis were going to record that song? Yeah. Nobody wants to hear a man ask that question. Like literally <laughs> nobody, nobody does. Don't do that. They right. made the right call. They want a sassy young woman to ask that question. No. Oh my God. That's all. I learned uh, about where that phrase came from. Their accountant uh, was the same guy who now his family owns First Avenue. And he was the longtime accountant at First Avenue in Minneapolis. And that was his little catchphrase. What have you done for me lately? <laughs> Oh my gosh, okay, that is great. so funny. <laughs> so take it from that to Janet is, yeah, that's pretty amazing creative uh, evolution. <laughs> I love that. I I really do. I, I also just like thinking about it, like in terms of, yeah, of like an accountant at a, you know, a music venue versus just like, you know, a young woman yelling at her deadbeat boyfriend. <laughs> it's kind of like, takes a different meaning and i mm -hmm. i like them both i don't mind it <laughs> oh my um, gosh yeah so i a ton of huge singles come out of this album but it's worth noting in kind of in between the the first single released and you know when i think of you was one of the later singles they actually hit number one with a different artist kind of a uh, surprising unexpected artist they produced the song Human by the Human League. That actually is their first number one. That's like in between the Janet singles. I did not know that was them. Yeah. And that's, you know, it gets, maybe it gets a little lost in the Janet shuffle because that's such a huge signature thing for them. But yeah. But I mean, that is a hit, you know, I mean, that, that was one. still played you know dang look at that there it is <laughs> jimmy jam and terry lewis august 11th 1986 and you released. can kind of hear it if if you think about it um well yeah like that kind of production sound it's just not very funky you know but like, maybe more mm -hmm. true to kind of jimmy's you know roots is wanting to be this really beautiful songwriter like with all these you know gorgeous harmonies and really sentimental lyrics and things i think the marriage of the the two is so interesting. It really brought out this new kind of sound with you know, Terry leaning into more of the groove and the and the funk and Jimmy just being pulled towards like something really pretty. How did the two of them together like become a little like I don't want to say little, but like become a duo? Like decide that like oh you've got this, I've got that. We really work together. You know, do we know anything kind of about how the two of them within the time you know hooked up or whatever? I don't know about the beginning of it, but I know that they definitely have like a very unique relationship, and that they're still best friends you know they talk to each other every day they love each other it's like this really authentic 
respect and admiration for one another that's somehow endured now 40 years. And I mean, when I interviewed Jimmy for this book project, he quotes Terry like he's quoting the scripture, you know, like he's like, well, as Terry always says, you know, and he's got all these like little catchphrases of like pieces of wisdom that he loves that he's learned from Terry. And there's just something really unique about that, like beyond, you know, what they've done creatively together. Like, how do you find a, a, a professional friendship like that that can last so long and through so many ups and downs? Yeah, I was gonna say, like, where's the drama between the two of them? It's like, mm -hmm. you know, the drama is all external. It sounds like they kind of have a rock solid bond, which is pretty unique in, in an industry full of so many egos and so much money. Mm -hmm. it, it is really hard to mm -hmm. find a relationship, a working relationship or any kind of relationship that has like lasted that long and remains functional. With a K. Um... There you go. <laughs> I do know early on, they were very clear to each other, 50-50, that's what's happening. We are a partnership, an equal partnership. And they they laid that groundwork from the get-go. And I think it's you, you do that, that can save you a lot of pain in the future. And I'm sure there's been drama. We just maybe don't know about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it wasn't big enough to spill over publicly. Right. But in terms of like their partnership, I do know that like Terry is considered like the vocalist whisperer. Like he is the one where like if you're trying to nail a vocal track, Terry's the one who will sit down with you and really hash it out. Yeah, I think that's accurate. I think um, Jimmy, a lot of the work that he does is leading up to going into the studio, the actual composition, thinking through the melodies, thinking about how to lay out the song. And then Terry's really, you know, that. I think well, I think they both are, but definitely in that mentor role of coaching and developing talent and really having an eye for talent. I mean, thinking about, you know, who he even had in his high school band is incredible. Um, some of the lead singers, in addition to Alexander O'Neill being in flight time, there was uh, Cynthia Johnson, who the vocalist that ended up singing the hook for Funky Town. That's right. Oh, wow. Sue Ann Carwell was in that band. And these were all like teenagers that Terry was, you know, seeking out of the scene and developing. So he really does have that kind of intuition about who he could work with and develop into, you know, someone really special. Now back to, you know, the, the Janet and the human league stuff after that, you know, we get more Alexander O'Neill, more Sherelle, um, their old buddy Morris day. They start working with him again. Uh, Patty LaBelle, Post Bobby Brown new edition, and I'll shout out the song "If It Isn't Love," which I think is the oh yeah the best awesome. song from that era for for them. One of my favorite things about this particular era is they inject some of that Janet magic into, of all people, Herb Alpert. That's right. And I totally forgot about that. There's a few songs, including Diamonds, which is a big hit, where Janet is one of the vocalists singing the hook. Don't you know, diamonds are a girl's best friend. You know, because Herb is, you know, he's playing his horn. <laughs> but she, it almost sounds like a like a Janet song because she's singing Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. And it went to like number five. It was a big hit. Hey, how about that? And Jimmy and Terry do a, a cool thing, which is uh, remixing their own work, which I, you know, wasn't done a ton back then. 
but getting I mean, a little bit more mileage out of the Janet stuff, they do some cool summer mix versions, which is what they what they call it. And they take uh, like they take a song like Nasty, which is very percussive, uh, and they like add kind of lush chords over it. And George Michael hears this and thinks it's really cool and then asks them to remix a song of his from the Faith album called Monkey. That's right. The original of Monkey is not what you heard. It's yeah. not the single. Thinking about hearing that song, you can, again, we're back to that drum. That drum uh-huh. sound that they essentially just created and popularized is like, that's all over that song. I mean, that song sounds like a Jimmy Jam. Mm-hmm. Wow, Monkey. What was the original? Did the original just kind of like sound a little? Well, it sounds easier? it sounds different because not only did they do it, like, I'm trying not to... only did they send it to Jimmy and Terry to make a new mix, but when Jimmy and Terry sent it back, he loved it so much he was like, "I need to do new new vocals on top of this because it had to probably sound grittier and funkier." I mean, that's a very gritty, funky song. It's quite a departure from the album track because it's he records new stuff uh, across the board. It's it's a, a complete overhaul, still technically a remix. And that song does go to number one on an incredible run for him from the Faith album, which was just like, I think that was like the fourth consecutive number one off that album. But he tapped into that Jimmy and Terry magic for that one. Um, and then, you, you know, we get to obviously... There are more Janet albums to come. We we make it to 89. Rhythm Nation, which is even bigger than Control. Six times platinum. Six top five pop hits. Oh and this time God. three go number one. Miss You Much, Escapade. Love Will Never Do Without You. trying to think the other day of like who my favorite pop artist is I'm like who's uh, who do I like them like whose songs who do I like the most songs by as an artist and it is Janet Jackson it might be Whitney Houston as like a close second but it is Janet Jackson there just isn't another person who's I like and know and actively would want to listen to as many songs by an artist like she's it i can't think of another artist i can't think of a band i there isn't someone who has as many songs that i like she's she's stood the test of time i love janet this isn't about that uh (laughs) well you know i mean to some degree it is because i think uh her collaboration with jimmy and terry kept the music evolving like it, it wasn't like it. Every album sounded like Control. No, I think the three of them pushed each other into new and interesting places. Yeah, totally. It's so versatile, but it also all seems so authentic to her. Like I think that's really a a key marker of a great songwriter that's collaborating with somebody is that it's almost kind of a surprise that they were all written, you know, behind the scenes by these other two artists, because it just feels like so much of her own persona and personality and the way that she was projecting herself into the world at that time. It's, 
It's an incredible artistic statement in that way. Yeah, and I think, you know, Jimmy and Terry, like other producers for sure, but they don't just want to offer up a fully completed song to somebody. It's about making sure it fits them and, and getting to know them and then going back and forth and having the song fit the artist and feel like it should come from that specific artist. That's all from hanging out in Minneapolis. <laughs> That's what Jimmy and Terry say anyways. Yeah, right. And so, you know, the af after Rhythm Nation, it's like New Edition breaks up. They do some stuff with those guys who were doing, you know, Ralph Tresvon and, and Johnny Gale. They score another number one hit in 1991 with a singer named Karen White and a song called Romantic. There's a lot of one-offs after that. Color Me Bad, Big Daddy Kane, MC Light. Wait, did, what did they do with Color Me Bad? Forever Love. That it's like very fun to imagine that the same people who produced Control produced The Velvet Rope. You know, right. those are very, very different albums. And they're Janet, even Janet right. mm -hmm. versus Rhythm Nation. I mean, those are very, very different albums. And they don't, you know, I say, oh, that iconic sound. Like they were had an iconic sound, I think, in the 80s. But they were able to continue to grow their production style and keep it relevant and keep it current. And I think that you see that through Janet's career in particular, like all through the 80s all through the 90s, all through the 2000s, through the aughts, you know, mm -hmm. they managed to have a lot of very relevant current hits that sounded current, that didn't sound like, oh, there they go doing their thing again, which I think is very cool. Absolutely. You know, you mentioned the, the drum sound. I just wanted to quickly shout out. I think it's the Roland TR-808, which is specifically what we're talking about, which is the thing that, you know, they weren't the first to use, but I think used it in a way that was uh, notable and, and kind of maybe even popularized. Yeah, I think they can kind of came out of that early 80s, like Lindrum, you know, with the knocking sound that Prince was, you know, so central in, in popularizing and then found like kind of the next step of where do you take that next? And it's interesting, I as a you know Prince person, I, I've come across some quotes from him in like the Diamonds and Pearls era where he's basically saying like, drum machines have gotten too popular now and you know jimmy jam may think that that's the wave of the future but i'm throwing all of my drum machines away so there was definitely this kind of rivalry you know minneapolis based of like who can like come up with the coolest way to use a drum machine <laughs> and again it's like I, I don't know that they ever had any prints and you know once jimmy and terry get super huge i don't i believe that there was always just kind of pride and a healthy competition i don't think there was ever any bitterness between those two camps i think it was yeah always a very like friendly competition that you know is true to their roots and perhaps intentionally you did gloss over their role in the movie graffiti bridge which is probably okay <laughs> i mean if you want to take that go ahead have you either of you seen graffiti bridge no mm -mm. okay it's an experience uh for sure it's definitely like not the best movie but it's um i think it's better if you view it as like a series of music videos that for some reason have a plot 
tying them together. Um, and the time is like all over it. They're, you know, it, the film opens with them all sitting around a table and they kind of reprise their roles from Purple Rain and it's supposedly a sequel, but it's in this kind of like weird fantasy world. And uh, it's not worth getting into any more detail than that, but it is, it was a moment of um, kind of everyone coming back together, you know, Morris Day and the time and Prince all trying to like work together again. And I think it just from a personal level, that was really important to all of them because they had these falling out outs as they were all getting really famous that they were able to like come back together and make work on the soundtrack, which is actually an amazing soundtrack and then work on this film, which you may or may not want to view. <laughs> so yeah, a cautious recommendation for graffiti bridge. <laughs> well, and also just kind of going back to the idea of Morris day, I'm we're jumping back in time, but like, going back to the idea of Morris Day, like being a character, you know, and like thinking of his character in Purple Rain and also thinking of how they wrote that in the competition between Prince and the time. And oh, like, yeah. that is so present in that movie. And you see also like, I mean, Morris Day is hilarious in that film. Like he's so funny. And like, that is knowing now that he's just like, who am I? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, yeah, he just announced he's going on one final album and tour cycle, and Ooh. then he's going to retire. Did he settle the dispute with the rights to the name? Because I remember that made headlines recently, that he right. was losing the rights to the name Morris Day in the Time, I believe, to the people running the Prince Estate. Yes, yeah, I'm actually not sure where that's at at the moment because the Prince Estate was just settled and handed over to the heirs like two months ago. Oh wow! Um, so I think a lot of things are in flux. So I don't know if they'll reopen that and revisit it now that it's the actual like Prince's family deciding things. Um, yeah. But I I know that was definitely a flashpoint in the Prince fan community over like who actually owns the time, you know. Yeah, that would be very interesting if your name was in it and then you don't own it. Mm, Interesting. Mm -hmm. I know you work for the estate on the (laughs) on the podcast, so uh, we won't expect, you know, you to to say anything. You don't 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 know anything. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. No comment is always fine. Yeah. But yeah, back to, you know, 93, you get the album Janet, another huge success six times platinum five more top five hits and honestly one of the all-time best albums to ever have come out front to back absolute love that very important album for me in the Kristen Studdard universe uh (laughs) gotta give it up to the Janet album and will continue to do so one of the few albums that okay I I can't I don't think I can amend my stance on skits or sketches or interstitials no you've been you've been pretty I I cannot uh, and I will not (laughs) and I wouldn't be mad if there were no interstitials or sketches on this album there's not many though this is the thing there's not that many and they're not long they're Mm -hmm. like little slices of life it's like you're in the studio it's like you're hanging with Janet and her friends yeah I mean they're not they're not like comedic right It's, it's it's no a vibe it's a vibe they're just trying to set the tone for the album that's the closest you'll get to me saying that they're okay right that they're okay yeah i don't on, think that on I that album that... they don't detract they do make some of the tracks too long though mm-hmm. which is a problem and you know <laughs> you don't always want to hear someone kind of like putting the record on or whatever or like just everyone giggling on a couch like uh-huh. i'd like the song to start please i'd like the song to start yeah, but you that. know I'm, I'm that's you on that. my soapbox stance 
it stands. I have not stepped off it. Okay. Good to know. Mm-hmm. I can still get some, I can still, you know, find some fervor for it. Yeah. Two more number ones for them on that album again. Uh, was also in the movie Poetic Justice. Oh, and and uh, that's the way love goes. Two monster, monster hits. After the Janet album, I'd say that the most significant thing to happen, you know, within a year was they started working with Boys to Men. And they do a, just a, just two tracks on their second album. Appropriately enough, is just titled Two. Um, but they do get a number one hit out of it on Bended Knee. And by 95, obviously they've worked with Janet a bunch. And who now is interested in them but Janet's brother, Michael. Well, well, well. Look who's coming around. <laughs> hmm. um, and, they, and, and they do scream. The duet between Janet and Michael. Which they is were sweet. like, okay, Michael, but you got it. We're kind of Janet's guys. <laughs> so she's coming too. You know, at this point, Jimmy and Terry have worked with a lot of artists, but I, I do think Obviously, Michael was intimidating. Have you heard the isolated vocals from Scream? I don't think I have, no. No, it's I don't think It's incredible crazy. and hair-raising. Um, in the Janet documentary that they collaborated on, um, that came, I think it came out on Lifetime last year, there's actually a scene of like Janet and Michael working on writing Scream, just the two of them in like this bedroom together, and then you get to hear... Michael singing in the booth and what you watch like Jimmy and Terry sitting at the like recording console just looking at each other like what and they said that he went in in one take and did the whole song just like as powerfully as you hear it in the final version and then came out and was like how is that <laughs> and they were <laughs> oh like oh my gosh whoa <laughs> yeah just incredible yeah. I've heard Janet because they didn't record that in minneapolis i believe they went to new york and after michael recorded his vocals janet was like well you know what why don't i'll do mine later yep (laughs) (laughs) well we can do ours in in minneapolis (laughs) although i had heard that when janet did her vocals in minneapolis then michael was like hold on can i do mine in minneapolis too like after they had came out to to new york you know got got a little jealous and that's now that there's a a rivalry for you a sibling oh, yeah. rivalry you know it's a little different but yeah and you know michael has an album at this time his jury which jimmy and terry do a few other tracks on that one. Oh mm-hmm. my gosh the history era see we could talk about michael on another show <laughs> i'm like oh yeah, boy mean, there's a lot, a lot to tap oh into my god yeah too much to tap into but how could we talk about michael now when just the next year new edition gets back together Okay, reunion. Who could forget forget the everybody talking about it? I mean, it was a big deal to some people. No, I I, I totally, you know, and and they do that. And they also oddly work with Rod Stewart for a little bit in 1996. I don't hate Rod Stewart, but I'm just like, that doesn't feel like a natural fit. But what do I know? And, you know, back to Boys to Men in 97 for a few tracks on the fourth 
album Evolution, including another number one, Four Seasons of Loneliness. And then now we can get we can get to Velvet Rope. Another huge one, three times platinum, and, and a, a real and evolution. An evolution in her sound yet again. So now I'm just going to talk about Janet Jackson some more, but it's like <laughs> when you look at the Janet album, which is still very full of pop, it's quite a poppy album. It's really great, but it's a pop album. And then you look at the Velvet Rope, which is solidly an R&B album. And it is so timely. The fact that she was able to get these like slow jams on the radio, it just wasn't happening for many other artists at, at that time. I can't rank my Janet albums. I won't. Don't make I, I refuse. But it is such a good album. And it has so many hits on it or things that I consider hits. I no, don't no, know. Totally. What was, I only know hits. what was popular to me at the time. You I know? mean, it, ha it had, you know, Together Again went to number one. And then, yeah. you know, a, a, a number of other hits, obviously, from that And album. Together Again, a song about the friends that she has lost from AIDS, yeah. you know? And we're still in this era. I mean, we're still even in it now, but, like, in particular, we're in it so hard. We've been working, stars for so long have been trying to elevate the cause and be allies to people who have contracted and died from AIDS. And, like... For Janet Jackson to put out a song that is so allied with the gay community and with this, you know, stigmatized disease and for it to go number one, it is really, that's like incredible and important. And she did it. It's funny because like Together Again doesn't even rank for me as a song. Like I think it's a great song, but like it doesn't mean a lot to me personally, but I'm like so grateful that it exists and I'm glad that it had the impact that it had. That's a great album. And again, a very like kind of sexy R&B album, which and again, uh -huh. you know, I think that we think of Jana as like her kind of because she's naked on the cover with the hands on the boobs. We think of that as like a very sexy album. But that to me is like got a lot of pop party songs on it. And I think the Velvet Rope is very like very chill vibe. And it's got a very subtle cover. You know, she's not even looking at the camera. Yeah, I think worth noting also, 1997, Control was mid-80s. 86, uh, I 86. think. 86, and, you know, they started working on the SOS band around 82, 83. And this song doesn't, I mean, this album, Velvet Rope, does not sound like a throwback. Nope. You no, know? so it's like the, Jimmy and Terry are able to still be as relevant as ever now more than a decade into their career. Well, and you think about how they must have had such a, you know, special working relationship with Janet. If Control hadn't done what it did, she wouldn't have had the career that she had and neither would they. And so it's like they became this like symbiotic entity that needed each other and helped each other to advance. And I feel like, you know, they were the only ones she trusted to really make her music. Right. If you look at it, like. <laughs> mm -hmm. So after Velvet Rope, you know, Patti LaBelle, Mary J. Blige, Shaggy, Jordan Knight of New Kids on the Block, uh, Shantae Moore, you get some minor Mariah Carey songs until they do have a number one with not just Mariah, but Joe. 
and 98 Degrees for a song called Thank God I Found You. I don't remember this song. I don't remember that. How odd. It went number one. It was, you know, I guess. I mean, you just said the names. I was like, Joe and 98 Degrees? Okay. It feels like very of its time. Like you get Mariah, you get a boy band and you get, you know, someone else <laughs> and the combination of it i guess was enough to be a, a number one at least for a little bit yeah i love mariah but this is from her lost era for me <laughs> yeah i mean i don't think that's unfair to say the next few years they get a few more number ones janet has a song called doesn't really matter of course from the say it with me guys nutty professor 2 soundtrack oh my gosh oh <laughs> my gosh that's right nutty 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 my love for you i forgot that song oh she's Janet. in that movie right he's in that movie yeah she's, i've not yeah. seen it but i remember that song because it's like a pretty good song but it is very closely tied to that movie like the I think that the music video is a lot of clips from the Nutty Professor. I think she's in the Nutty Professor and the words yes. Nutty, 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 my love for you, I do <laughs> believe are part of the lyrics. Joe, you kind of set up this whole podcast as saying I'm the one that has all the like music nerd knowledge and then Kristen reacts to it and she's just over here dropping Janet like hits and knowledge and when it comes to Janet Jackson I am solidly the expert I would say (laughs) (laughs) without a doubt I um I really do love her uh yeah the tables turn a little bit when it comes to Janet suddenly I'm like check out this nerd over here uh well and also one of the reasons that our podcast continues to this day is that Janet Jackson did get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and it is like one of the things that made me be like yeah all right Let's, this is the, okay. All right. I'll keep going. And, you know, and she made that big speech. She acknowledged Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. She made them stand up. It was amazing. It was and- really sweet. Yeah. To get back to the kind of 2000s era of Jimmy and Terry, you get the Spice Girls as a, as a group and solo. Um, you get that band, the girl group Cleopatra. Um, oh. They do, Sting's My Funny Friend in Me from the Emperor's New Groove soundtrack, speaking of soundtracks, which is nominated for an Oscar. Yeah, 2001, All For You by Janet. Title track goes to number one. Also, just notable for this year in the Rock Hall, there's a track called Son of a Gun, which was gonna sample You're So Vain by Carly Simon. But when Janet called up Carly, she was like, you know what? I'd like to re-record the vocals and I have some new lyrics I'd like to throw in there. And so it became like Janet with Carly Simon. Wow. (laughs) 2001, we also get No More Drama by Mary J. Blige. One of the few songs that they brought to an artist thinking, like it was kind of completed, but they were like, we want Mary to throw her Mary J. onto it and like we'll work back and forth. But she was kind of like, have you guys been following me? This is like exactly what I want to say. Let's do it. I'm ready. Oh my gosh. That's great. 
that's Mary J's heart thesis out statement. There. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that speaks again to just their ability to really like read the room of where an artist is at and write something that really complements their own artistic vision and what they want to be saying in that moment. I mean, that's an incredible skill. You know, you think about people that work behind the scenes in Hollywood and Nashville co-writing and there's, you know, the art of actually being able to like make a hit and like a catchy melody, that's one skill, but then to actually like emotionally convey like where someone is coming from in mm -hmm. lyrics and in the, the song is, yeah, few people that know how to do that, I think. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Usher in 2001, they do the song, You Remind Me. That's a hit. It's a number one hit, and it would be the last number one hit for Jimmy and Terry. But uh, quite a run of kind of being on top, mm -hmm. you know, from 86 to 2001. What are my guys doing right now? What are they up to? Yeah, so, um, I mean, just to, after that, I'll give you like a quick rundown of who, who they've worked with, including Beyonce, Faith Evans, Gwen Stefani, Earth, Wind & Fire, Shaka Khan. Of course, who could forget the collaboration between Carly Simon and Megan Mullally for the Will and Grace soundtrack. Oh, um, and you know, the, the coolest thing I think with Jimmy and Terry recently is they finally put out their own album. Yeah. Oh. Volume one. Volume one? Mm -hmm. Oh, I love it when people do that. They go they go volume one on a on a, on an album. They're just so sure they've got more to say. There will be more. The demand will be high. It's like when a tweet is like part one of question mark. Mm -hmm. Just wait and see. We'll see how much I have to say. <laughs> but you know, they've had designs to do this for, for so long and then they, they finally did it last year. Yeah, they're both so incredibly proud of that album and the fact that they have so many friends that they can call on to, you know, add their vocals to their songs and people are just so always down to collaborate with them. I think, you know, it's obviously their catalog is impressive, but the part of their legacy and part of why I really wasn't that surprised why they're being inducted is that they have such a high level of professional respect from their peers in the industry. And I think it's because they've gotten so involved on the back end of always wanting to be like in the room where decisions are being made, being on the board of the Grammys, being part of ASCAP, being, you know, having these role, like really important roles in these organizations. Jimmy especially has been very active in that, that kind of side of things like in LA and, and really, you know, always being at the Grammys and always presenting awards and always introducing new artists to each other and, just always staying so hungry to like connect and discover and like see where music's headed. Um, I think that's a huge part of their legacy as well. And probably why they've been able to continue to adapt and evolve and, you know, over time make music that doesn't sound like what they've made in the past is they both seem really excited, um, you know, equally by new artists as they do by the legacy artists that they've worked with. Yeah. And obviously this album has, a ton of artists on it, as you as you can imagine. Are they singing on this new album? No. No. Okay. No, but who is Mary J. Blige, Boys to Men, Mariah Carey, Usher, Morris Day, and Jerome? Yeah, they, they've got you know <laughs> their old their old buddies in the mix. Good for them. And it's Tony Braxton. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm looking at it now. 
Okay. Volume one. Volume one. More Jam to come. and Lewis, volume one. I thought it was really cool too that it gave him a chance to like go on a interview, like kind of press circuit, you know, mm. and really talk about themselves. Like I don't I think they both kind of shied away from that, Terry especially, about really like wanting to talk about themselves it's kind of a maybe a midwestern thing or just like a let's keep working kind of thing but mm -hmm. i think it's really important that they're at this phase in their career where they're going to be recognized for all of these achievements and celebrated and kind of put in that canon alongside all of these other iconic artists because they absolutely deserve it and i hope more people get curious about them and, and want to know about you know what they did and where they came from and all of these things because their story is incredible well, and I love them getting their their roses while they're still around to appreciate them. You know, I mean, I don't think of them necessarily as like done, you know, like, yes, mm -hmm. it's been a while since they made it a number one hit or whatever. But like, you know, they're still producing music. They are still, like you say, engaged with like the idea of new artists and stuff, which I think is very cool. And I think this will just help to raise their profile even more. And I got really excited when we watched The Black Godfather and I was just very inspired and interested in kind of all of the work that Clarence Avant had done. And like, I hope that that's the same thing that's going to happen uh, with people and seeing that they're being inducted. Although, I mean, who does the Rock Hall reach? I might be like the only person who it, it like reaches in this way because of uh, my very unique position, but- uh, Your obligation- <laughs> yes, some might say. No, but the thing is, we we do know and we have seen that, like, this is exposure in a way that you wouldn't expect. Like, it's it always brings new eyes because often because of the strange mixture of inductees every year. So, like, Judas Priest fans are going to learn about Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Mm -hmm. uh, Eminem fans, same thing. You know, it's all across the board. Now... With this induction ceremony coming up, I know I'm kind of springing this question on you, Andrea. But I mean, there's an ob there's one huge obvious answer, but we can we can talk about the number. <laughs> but like, who should induct them? Who should give the speech? I mean, like Janet it obviously comes to mind immediately. But I mean, I want to see a 95 year old Cornbread Harris on that stage. Ooh. <laughs> of course, you do. <laughs> I don't think a, a TV producer would go for that, but that's a great question. I mean, I in my mind, the immediate answer is her because that's the young artist that they've really been championing and they play mm -hmm. behind her at the Grammys. And I know that they like to choose an artist who has been inspired by the person mm -hmm. that's being inducted so they can really talk about like how it influenced them, like mm -hmm. having Alicia Keys um, induct Prince. So that that's my guess, I guess I would go with her. With her, yeah, you know, and you know, I thought you were hall. saying her, and I was just like, yes, Janet. Her. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I know you. Well. H e r her. Yeah, yeah. you know, if having the everything hall, revealed. <laughs> if the rock hall can ever take an opportunity to pretend like they're relevant, they do that. And her has been in the mix mm -hmm. with the hall the past few years you know she played for the tina turner tribute for the tina yeah she was scheduled to sing and perform for the whitney tribute which ended up not happening because of the pandemic mm. but obviously they have her number so that is that is someone that is a uh, realistic but the other thing is like with jimmy and terry not only with the artists that they've worked with but as you said like they're standing in the industry as people that like everybody loves it could be a huge surprise it could be someone they've never worked with it could be who knows? 
So I'm, I'm excited to see that. And I'm assuming they will get a speech. We saw last year, some of these side category artists just got a package, but given that Jimmy They're and Terry are- and yeah. they will show up. Right. You know? Someone's going to give a speech. Yeah. The way Lionel did for uh, Clarence. Clarence, Ava. yeah. I, mm-hmm. I just think there's, there's no way that we don't get some kind of real thing. If Janet is- See, now, Joe- Oh, yeah. Well, the other thing is, I don't know if we've said it on- We on, haven't. That's why I'm like, yet. we're about to do a big reveal. <laughs> yeah. We are not going to the ceremony uh, for the first time since we've Which I can't believe I am the one who is probably the most upset about it. Yeah. we. I we, think I'm more upset about it than Joe. Because now our, we're talking about this. Mm-hmm. So Dolly Parton is getting in. Benatar. Janet Jackson will probably be in the building. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Anyway, our listeners going? know we have a wedding to attend. We have a wedding to attend. A, a dear friend of ours is getting married. Fun. And some of Joe's very best friends in the world will be in New Orleans. It's like the one year that it's going to be in L.A. suddenly and we're out of town. We and we knew be, it. It would have been so easy. And yet. There were just no flights that came back at, an, at a reasonable time also that would have made us get back in time to go to the thing right sorry I, I was, we don't need to get the logistics they don't need to know <laughs> but andrea would you go to the induction ceremony i'm actually Jimmy thinking and, about it because yeah. um i was supposed to go to la next month anyways and i was thinking about maybe delaying a, a couple of weeks and actually like trying to be there when it's happening i just think it's going to be such a moment mm-hmm. for them and yeah i would love to see that and then is it it like it's a while before they'll actually like broadcast it right I think it'll it'll take a few weeks after because November is is the ceremony and then like I think they try to make it a relatively quick turnaround but it could be as long as a month. Yeah, I want to see HBO that right broadcast. Away. I don't want to yeah. wait. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, if you go, you'll have to tell us what happens. Yeah, we live text us. We <laughs> need to have people on the ground. The there. thing about it, I'm trying to imagine. I know Joe's like, oh, we're not going. I've made peace with it or whatever. But he's going to be on his phone all Saturday <laughs> night. I do know that for sure we're going to be in new orleans there's going to be a brass band playing behind us and he's going to be checking his phone and be like so and so yeah <laughs> well andrea i want to thank you so much for joining us this was a lot of fun i yeah, really appreciate cool. it and i yeah, want to amazing. give you the opportunity to plug uh anything you want i know you've got books out and a book on the way so please Oh, yeah. Well, my first book is called Got to Be Something Here, The Rise of the Minneapolis Sound. Jimmy and Terry are in it. And uh, as our Prince and Morris Day and Andre Simone and all of these Minneapolis Sound guys and all their parents and kind of the generation before them, um, which is how I got interested in Cornbread Harris. And um, now I'm working on his biography, which should be out next year um, on the University of Minnesota Press, who I write for. Excellent. Thanks for asking. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, you know, look out for that, everyone. Of course, our listeners know they can follow us at Rock Hall Pod on Twitter and Instagram. RockHallPod at gmail.com is the email. If you want to reach Kristen, you need to designate that somewhere in your message. Otherwise, I'm not going to forward it. She doesn't want to read it. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Rate, review us five stars only. Anything less than five, of course, would be cruel. Don't do that to us. Be nice. Mm-hmm. Five is the only thing that will help us. A four? Sorry, that's as bad as a one. Uh, thank you to mike lloyd for the logo thank you to yusu kim for the music and thank you to pantheon podcast for hosting us i'm joe pozala i'm kristen stuttered and who cares about the rock call
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.